Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. If you join, you'll get to listen to the podcast early. You'll get to watch my sketch comedy early, as well as experience other exclusive content. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you're looking for another way to support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. So if you're into cold brew, I highly recommend Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code LOU, that's L-O-U, and you'll get free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com. And if you use the code LOU, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off as well. All right, here we go. Sadly, I think we've gotten to the point where, you know, if it does come out that, you know, alien life made contact with us, I think it'll be, you know, pretty big for a couple of days and then it'll just, and then it'll just go away. We'll be, we'll be on to something else. I am so happy for my next guest to be joining me. His name is Todd Seavey. He is a writer. He's the author of the book, Libertarians for Beginners, which is celebrating its fifth anniversary. He's a man about town, and also I'm happy to say he's a buddy. He's a friend of mine. And well, uh, thanks. Yeah, and I, Todd, I forget I forget how long ago we met, but um, I think it was one of those things where we were uh, we 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 found each other at a lot of uh, Reason Magazine and Reason TV events. Right. Actually, you know, it's funny. Like a lot of people, I find myself almost forgetting how life worked before COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly for free market leaning people in New York City. A lot of how we met stories are vague, fuzzily remembered ones that involve cocktail parties or luncheons or think tank events or something, which is not very exciting. But yeah, I think we too probably uh, met at a reason event or something. Oh, well, obviously it changed our lives. Yeah, changed our lives forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, so uh, you're going to be celebrating the fifth anniversary of libertarian libertarianism for beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did how did that book come about? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, actually, there's a book publishing company that specializes in doing uh, books that all have the title formula blank for beginners. Uh, so they'll recruit people to do uh, architecture for beginners or Nietzsche for beginners and so forth. And they wanted to do libertarianism for beginners, uh, probably in part because back in 2016, when it came out hard as this is to believe now, uh, it looked for a short time as if Rand Paul might be like the front runner for the Republican nomination. We were so naive back then. And, uh, and then by the time the book, uh, uh, came out, um, Libertarianism had been completely and utterly destroyed and forgotten, and uh, Trump and populism uh, took over the Republican Party, and uh, and we live in a very different world now. For- yeah, yeah, I remember uh, during one of the debates when there were like uh, you know seventeen Republicans on the uh-huh. stage, and it was probably like probably like an hour, an hour and a half into the debate, and you know Trump was you know destroying everybody on the stage and not with anything really substantive, but just, you know, just mocking. He was basically like doing a roast battle up there. And um, I was watching the debate. I think it was at a, I was at a bar and, you know, a few drinks in and then Rand Paul starts talking about the drug war and starts talking about how, you know, marijuana should be 
at least decriminalized and all that. And I was texting uh, back and forth with a friend of mine who is a, a Democrat, you know, left-leaning, you know, very, um, you know, very supportive of, uh, you know, of, of that side of the, of the aisle. And I was saying, and, you know, we were basically talking about, I'm like, nobody is hearing this. Like nobody is hearing this important message uh, because we are an hour and a half deep into a, you know, a, a seven, you know, basically like a, a, a Royal rumble of, uh, of uh, Republicans. Um, I think there was a debate in January of 2016, if I remember correctly, a uh, Republican primary debate where uh, Trump pretty much destroyed Rand Paul by literally making fun of his hair and his height. And that was, you know, when I realized that maybe the uh, philosophical arguments I'd spent the two and a half <laughs> prior decades honing really didn't matter. Right. Oh, well, but you know, the book is still out there. If you want to buy a copy, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, libertarianism continues to exist. Remember, it's a philosophy. So even if everyone stops believing in it, in an abstract sense, it still exists. Yeah. Well, there, there's the, you know, the cliche of, uh, you know, you know, you're not a real libertarian uh, or, there, you know, well, you know, so-and-so said this and a, a real libertarian wouldn't, wouldn't say that. And well, when you're working, you know, with those kinds of people, and I'm part, I'm a part of those kinds of people, um, even though I don't necessarily ever say like, oh, you're not a real libertarian. Uh, you know, what's it like to write a book where you're obviously going to, there's a good chance you're going to piss off a bunch of libertarian nerds who really know their stuff. You know? It, it helped to write it uh, again, like just before the uh, Trump era really began, in part because my naivete about how vicious and combative people can get uh, was still in place. Uh, maybe I should issue a blanket apology for everything I ever said before that, uh, in that I didn't really think people took political combat that seriously. So if they insulted each other or said, everybody who thinks that should be hung, I just assumed nobody actually meant it. Mm -hmm. And now for the last five years, they've actually been having street fights and, you know, Proud Boys punching Antifa and stuff like that, uh, as uh, one of your recent guests, uh, Andy Neo, uh, knows so well. Um, uh, so at the time I was writing it, in more of a uh, philosophy student frame of mind, you know, not like street fighter, but more like, oh, hey, here are these different schools of thought and they're all kind of fun and I'll put them together and taxonomize them a little and make a little glossary in the back and what harm could it do? And we can learn from all of these things. And as Chairman Mao said, let a hundred <laughs> flowers bloom. Um, and now I think probably a lot of people are either terrified that everything they say or every uh, philosophical deviation will result in a Twitter swarm of angry maniacs, or like a lot of you comedians, they just sort of develop a uh, thicker skin and sort of decide like, I don't care. I'm just gonna forge ahead. And if everybody thinks I'm a jerk, I'll just live with it. And that'll be part of the MO, um, which in some ways is good. And in some ways a sad thing because I was more of a philosophy student at heart than a combatant. Um, although I'm sure there are plenty of people who think I'm a jerk. Um, so if I, if, I had, if I had to do the book now, it would be, I think I would be much more conscious of the fact that there are tripwires everywhere and all these factions who hate each other and stuff. Uh, back when I wrote it and for the preceding couple of decades, it kind of seemed like there were at most like two big libertarian factions loosely referred to sometimes as the uh, Mises camp and the uh, Cato slash reason camp. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, you know, and some people liked elements of both of them as, as I did and didn't worry too much about them trying to really destroy each other. Um, if they didn't like each other, they just didn't talk to each other. Uh, but it, it didn't seem like that tribalistic or combative uh, a field. And now there's, there are so many little camps and petty hatreds that uh, I, I, I can't keep track of them. You could write a whole book just sort of uh, uh, taxonomizing all the different groups, whereas I tried to relegate that to uh, the glossary and a couple of lists uh, in the books, but treat it like there was at least a consensus philosophy that virtually all libertarians could agree on. Uh, and, the, and and my main goal was con convert the world, I guess, uh, inform the world. I mean, I wasn't really uh, proselytizing per se with the book, but inform the outside world what libertarians in general are thinking. Whereas now, uh, you almost have to assume that first you fight 16 other factions of libertarians, and then if you can get them to agree on something, you go out and try to convert the rest of the world and fail, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I found, um, I've talked about this before, that um, my wife had never heard of libertarianism or ever met a libertarian that she knows of before she met me. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm her first, I'm, I'm her, uh, you know, her chaperone into, uh, into this world. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to, anytime I hear people, you know, talk about libertarians for the most part, uh, my first, uh, my first reaction is often, oh, I don't think you've ever met a libertarian before. It, it seems like a lot of people have, this idea of what a libertarian is or what libertarians believe out there. And, and so often they, they always mix it with, uh, you know, Ayn Rand or objectivism. And as far as I know, Ayn Rand didn't like uh, the idea of being called a libertarian. And she had her, you know, big, uh, big problems with that. Um, uh, you know, so, so I think that there, there's that hurdle. And then the, the other thing I always hear is sort of like, oh yeah, libertarians, you know, that's something to talk. That's the kind of stuff you talk about in your, in your dorm room, but here in the real world. Uh, and it's like, wow, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So in my dorm room, I need to, that's where I need to talk about, uh, you know, uh, ownership of your own body, um, doing away with the war on drugs, uh, you know, legalizing sex work and doing away with foreign, foreign wars. It's like when I mature and, you know, step out of the dorm, then I get to put that stuff, uh, that stuff aside. Um, so is there a question there? Well, I guess, you know, it's sort of how, uh, you know, obviously you are, you know, making an attempt to, to educate people on, on this stuff. Uh, has, do you think it's worked? Not, not even necessarily, it's been all on you, but do you think, you know, five years, uh, you know, five years after the, the release, you know, has, has the world woken up a little bit more to uh, libertarianism? I, I mean, I think it's been so distracted by, uh, fighting over populist stuff uh, and Trump that uh, a lot of people probably barely even remember the econ arguments that used to matter. I suppose one of my new pet peeves is that a lot of libertarians, self-proclaimed libertarians kind of behave as if they barely remember the economics arguments and constitutionalism arguments uh, that started the movement. Um, just to take a couple uh, examples I've found myself talking about recently. Um, I would have thought that property rights adherence is not only central to the philosophy, but a pretty good litmus test of whether you are behaving like a real libertarian, so to speak, or not. But there are some people out there who call themselves libertarians who, um, if they're right-leaning, think that uh, that should mean you can go into a store with your mask off and your gun on your hip, even if the owner doesn't want you there. Mm -hmm. um, 
which doesn't sound like uh, deference to property owners to me. And then, of course, on the uh, left-leaning side, there are uh, some fringier, perhaps rarer uh, libertarians who've tried to incorporate very specific cultural requirements, like you have to love the trans movement or something. Uh, there are a few libertarians who sound sort of like 19th century style uh, left anarchists and think that you should be opposed to bosses and landlords and stuff mm -hmm. like that, which all sounds kind of Marxist to me, um, but there is a tradition of that sort of thinking. And then in the middle, actually maybe uh, the center left or the, the liberal leaning uh, libertarians, you get a lot who I think pride themselves on how casual and relaxed they are about the whole philosophy, but that means they're allowed to dabble and sort of pick and choose. They're like, oh, I kind of like carbon taxes, but eh, not so much, uh, uh, pot anti-pot laws, but uh, maybe anti-cocaine laws are okay. And like, it's all just kind of a hobby and they can pick and choose whatever they want. Some of those people are pleasant to be around and they're the ones serving the hors d'oeuvres. So you have to be nice to them. Uh, but that's no way to run a philosophy if you're actually trying to get people to learn and adhere to some sort of uh, clear principles. And then the right-leaning version of those people in the center, I guess, would be kind of the maybe the average uh, Fox News commentator um, who's uh, good about the free market in some ways, but uh, kind of gives a, maybe gives a pass to the police and or military um, or is uh, uh, un unsympathetic to uh, uh, concerns about uh, how, how much the state targets uh, fringe groups, marginalized people and, and that sort of thing. They might not want to hear about the history of imperialism being a terrible, uh, bloody thing, because uh, that sounds like lefty talk, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, um, you know, before we started recording this, um, I, I was talking about uh, my my interest in in um, in anarchy, um, especially, you know, having, you know, friends like your like yourself, um, who've, you know, talked about it. And I think sort of what you've just demonstrated here, given, given examples of, is that it's, it's really tough to be a principled libertarian or, you know, basically to be a principled person to begin with, where it's sort of, yeah, even if you're a principled, even if, uh, say, you're a Marxist, I bet it's really tough for people to be Marxist nowadays because it's, you know, uh, the reality is in your day-to-day -day life, you have to give here or you're not or you're kind of forced to give in to certain uh to certain things and uh my my attraction to uh to libertarianism uh i it, it took me a while to realize this but it, it ultimately came down to the principle of, of non-aggression and you know i kind of i, I you know for a while especially over the past year or so i've been thinking like well wait a minute you know if i'm against the non-aggression principle, if I, if I think you can't initiate force, then how the hell can I defend a state? How the, how the hell can I, you know, how the hell can I do that? Um, you know, and so I'm, uh, it's, uh, it's around 9 p.m. on a, on a Thursday, and I'm, uh, I haven't slept very much because my, my son is waking me up uh, in the middle of the Congratulations. night. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but, you know, so I'm having all of these things of uh, all of these thoughts, these thoughts of I'm a father and I want to raise my son well and I want to raise him to be a good person and I want to be a good person. And here I believe this philosophy. And yet and yet I call myself a, a, a minarchist some days like, ah, you know, 
so you know what, what where's the hope for me do I, do I have yeah am I thinking well, too much uh, uh, I guess uh, Matt Kibbe uh, pointed out a way that you can uh, render libertarianism so uh, simple and agreeable sounding that it actually is quite suitable for teaching to children which might help you with the uh, the fathering um, he he rightly pointed out that uh, if uh, libertarians are mainly opposed to assault theft and fraud uh, that's sort of like trying to teach the world the basic playground lesson that you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't uh, steal, and you shouldn't mm -hmm. punch people. Uh, so if you you know if you start off there, that's relatively simple and might help anchor your sea and your your boat in the uh, tumultuous sea of philosophy. Uh, for a long time, I think the reason I probably didn't sound like an anarchist, even though technically I was, my whole adult life technically I've been an anarcho-capitalist, that is mm -hmm. someone who wants people to adhere to property rights and therefore completely get rid of government. Uh, but I probably didn't sound that radical all the time because I thought, okay, there are so few anarcho-capitalists. And back then, uh, you know, I figure like in the 90s, I wasn't even sure there was more than another 20 or 30 such people out there. Um, I assumed I should just start out with kind of the easy parts of the message and gradually maybe over decades uh, not you know uh, ratchet it up a little and get more radical sounding um so i thought start out by criticizing say the stupidest government programs things that uh, almost everybody would agree are boondoggles total waste of money aren't even achieving their own stated aims and because of that, thought of myself as uh, kind of compatible with the Republicans, because at least they were often criticizing wasteful programs or calling for spending or tax cuts. Uh, and then gradually, uh, I, I started to get uh, sort of more radical. The original plan was, as society becomes more libertarian, uh, I will keep getting more radical to push the envelope. And instead, what ended up happening is society pretty much stayed the same. And I just got more and more impatient and thus more radical sounding. Um, but also, I did realize over time that people, uh, regardless of their philosophies, they tend to respect consistency. So mm. if you're picking your battles, even if you're trying to do it to be maximally uh, persuasive uh people often feel like oh you've chosen a team and that's all that matters uh whereas if you're if you uh seem like you're you're uh, swinging for the bleachers from the get-go uh and you're willing to say right off the bat i think the entire government should be abolished no one should ever use anybody else's body or property without permission i'm against uh the drug war, normal wars, imperialism, the welfare state, uh, border walls, uh, and everything else, uh, they at least realize like, oh, okay, he's, he's, uh, he's putting his cards on the table and being consistent. Uh, so now whether it's uh, principle or exhaustion and impatience, I, I tend to just uh, lead with the whole radical story from the get-go. Uh, there, there is a tendency, that, especially on uh, like Twitter uh, lately, I think, for people to pretend that they're sort of radical because they're very combative, mm -hmm. but they're actually kind of scared to explain where they exactly where they stand and probably couldn't articulate exactly what their principles are. So they make up for it in some cases, I think, especially young males, I, I would venture to guess, uh, by sounding really combative about the things they know a bunch of other people agree with them on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they might spend all day uh, ranting about how much they hate the left, but if you really started 
picking at exactly what their principles were, or God forbid, ask them a tricky philosophical problem, like, you know, you're stuck on a rowboat in the middle of the ocean, and uh, one person is starving, the other one has food and so forth. Uh, they'd freak out if they didn't have recourse to insulting you with a couple of tweets. Um, so I think uh, the speed of Twitter is making philosophy harder to do in some ways. Um, there's more, I guess, more noise than authentic radicalism in the philosophical sense, I suspect. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wonder too, it's sort of, uh, um, as I've, as I've gotten older and I've gotten very tired as I've, as I've, as I've explained where it's sort of, you know, what role can I possibly be playing, uh, to bring about the world that I want to see? Because it's like, well, how much power do I really have? Um, and at what point am I sort of, you know, leading with like sort of how you, how you said, I believe, I believe in this, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, but it's like, I'm not necessarily putting my body on the, you know, on the line. I'm not necessarily putting my freedom, you know, on the line. And it's like, how much of it is me, uh, how much is it me sort of, um, trying to make myself believe that I really believe this stuff. Um, you, you know, and, and uh, I had, uh, when I was in, when I was in college, I, I went to, um, I went to NYU and the best class that I had at NYU was a class with this guy, Mark Cohen, and it was called belief and skepticism. And it was a it was a really great class because we had these really difficult conversations and, and I wasn't a philosophy, you know, major or anything like that, but we had these really, really interesting discussions. And one day in class, I said, I don't care about Africa. And there were, you know, gasps like, <gasps> and, you know, other students were like, what? How don't you care? What? You don't care about Africa? And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't care about Africa. Look where I am. I'm here in New York. Now I could say that I care about Africa, but I'm still here in New York. I'm not doing anything in Africa. I'm not over there trying to help people. You know, maybe, I'm, you know, if I send five bucks, like, does that really show that I care? Um, and uh, I, guess, I guess it made a, a nice little um, impact on, on Mark, the professor, because he's like, wow, that's really, he's like, that's, that's something interesting to think about. Can you really say you care about something if you're not doing anything to actually show that you, you know, that, that, that you care about it? Um, and, you know, I, I do, you know, wonder sometimes with, with this sort of stuff where it's like, well, well, what am I doing and what can I possibly be doing to show people that I actually care about um, about this stuff? And I, I don't know if that's more of like a practical day-to-day, -day, you know, practical day-to-day -day anarchism, you know, if you will, or, or anar uh, uh, anarcho-capitalism or, or, or I don't know. I need help. You're my priest. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, actually, it's funny. Uh, four major libertarian uh, philosophers crossed my mind because of uh, those comments. I think it was uh, Adam Smith, who said uh, we should confess that uh, uh, it, is, it is natural for the average person uh, to care much more about a cut on his own finger than hearing about 10,000 people killed by an earthquake uh, in distant China or something along those lines. Um, uh, however, it also reminds me that uh, one of the reasons I'm a utilitarian um, and uh, in a way more foundationally than a libertarian uh, is because utilitarianism teaches that uh, the real moral goal ultimately is trying to maximize everyone's happiness. Um, and if you're a rule utilitarian, you don't just run around willy nilly 
uh, from act to act trying to make people more happy, but you look for those rules that'll tend to foster uh, maximum human happiness uh, amongst the entire population over the long haul. And I think those rules are property rights rules. Uh, so in that sense, I'm a, I'm a, a utilitarian libertarian um, or a, a bit like uh, early Rothbard, uh, the uh, libertarian economist. Uh, so even if your natural emotional inclination is to not care about some distant land, I do think it's good to be a universalist who recognizes that everyone's happiness matters. And you want to promulgate those rules that whether it's in your own backyard or on the other side of the planet will tend to make people uh, more happy. And I get a little nervous sometimes when I hear um, some of the paleo-conservative-leaning libertarians will, will rightly observe that universalism is sort of dangerous and it could lead to people thinking like imperialists. Uh, but then they'll say, you know, therefore we should be very local uh, in our thinking and uh, and suspicious of immigrants and newcomers and that sort of thing. And uh, it's nice if they're trying to avoid the excesses or impersonal qualities of universalism, but morality is still supposed to be universal. It's not like uh, New Yorkers have an obligation not to steal until they go to New Jersey uh, and then it becomes okay. So the, I would say the way that you manage to make yourself behave as if you care about the people in New Jersey or on the other side of the planet is by adopting some set of universal rules such as property rights that will apply wherever you go uh, and that way, hopefully, you'll sympathize with uh, cases of rights violations, even on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, I was also reminded of uh, Ayn Rand uh, during your comments, because uh, although I'm not an objectivist either, um, I do think she was right to point out that self-sacrifice is not necessarily the measure of whether you're accomplishing things in this world. So I, you shouldn't feel too guilty if you find yourself thinking like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't sacrifice much for the cause today. I'm not beating myself up and I spent all day worrying about my kid instead of how to get the message out. You know, you're allowed to take time off um, and you know, your self-sacrifice is not necessarily the best way to make the world a better place. Yeah, you, you're... Um, you're uh... Talking about paleocons made me think of this joke where I said uh, a paleocon sounds like a uh, conservative who thinks dinosaurs choose to be gay, um, and that's, that remind that reminded me of that. But but also you know I, I think I think too it, it, uh, you know while I, I might you know have these you know thoughts you know swirling around in my mind you know there there is also the reality of me understanding you know how much change I can actually affect in the world and I did. Um, uh, few months back, uh, I think you know, it was at the end of, of 2020, I was on a panel discussion about um, social justice and comedy. And um, I, did, I didn't do very well on the panel. Um, afterward, I was like, oh my God, I'm just, I sound like just a babbling idiot. And I had all these really good responses like a week later, you know, mm -hmm. after I was just thinking about this stuff and just being, uh, just beating myself up over it. But you know, to the question of, you know, you know, uh, how can comedy help social justice or push push social justice or social change? And, you know, the reality is, well, you know, if I'm if I'm at a show, the only change that I can effectively hope to to create is to take an audience that isn't that isn't laughing to laughing. You know, it's it, it, the idea that that there's going to be something I'm going to say to make them go out into the world and. I don't know, change something on a, on a bigger scale, I think 
is uh, is pretty slim, and I and I don't have a messiah complex or anything like that. But also, I think that there's something to be said for if you are able to entertain people, you know, even in a in a you know uh, on stage, and you know change things for the for the better, make a positive impact by making them laugh. Like you know what, that is something that's actually pretty that is pretty cool. And um, I think in, in, in the field of, uh, in the industry of comedy, I, I think I've just seen so many people who spent decades and decades of their lives doing this amazing thing, uh, making people really happy, making people laugh. And then they turn around and they say, well, I should be doing something way more important than this. So now let me use my platform to speak out on, you know, all these different, you know, social issues. And, and then uh, tragically uh, they become Jeanine Garofalo. Yeah, um, it, who I loved as a um, as an actress. Mm -hmm. I think she, I think she's a phenomenal uh, actress. But yeah, there was a time where I remember seeing her like with um, like a notebook on stage, and I don't know what I don't know what she. It was sort of, sort of like she was doing her version of Lenny Bruce reading his uh, court transcripts or something like that. Actually, uh, back when uh, people actually walked around in New York City. I wouldn't be surprised to find that you and I went to the same uh, club where I guess comedians, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but there was a place I think on the Lower East Side where they would deliberately try out new untested material. And I think Janine Garofalo would show up with a notebook at that and read sort of half formed uh, jokes that she was still uh, working on, which is kind of cool. But yeah. maybe we, we might have seen her at the same uh, place doing that shtick or proto shtick. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and now, actually, uh, you've reminded me of Scarlett Johansson, um, because uh, apparently she just recently said that uh, she's a little tired of actors being told that they're obliged to uh, pursue political projects and have positions on everything. And I'm sure she knows full well a lot of actors aren't that well informed. And even mm -hmm. if they can, even if they can speak as if they are, they're actually just you know picturing some. Uh, uh, political movie they once saw and they really don't uh, have their statistics in place and stuff uh, except the occasional crank like Mark Ruffalo and then you know and then we're probably worse off than if he didn't talk uh, but but uh, ScarJo bless her said uh, my job of making people feel like a story comes alive and making them empathize with someone who is different from themselves uh, and and sympathize with an adventure they're watching. That's my job. That's how I enhance their lives. And this other stuff really doesn't fall within my job description. Um, her being willing to say that is a little bit like you being willing perhaps to tell a panel of uh, comedians that uh, spreading social justice isn't their first priority. Just being funny would be a surprising and immense accomplishment for most comedians, frankly. Uh, well, yeah, and, I, and with, yeah, and with, with ScarJo, I remember, I remember seeing that, uh, that tweet and, um, and I think I, I retweeted it and said, you know, oftentimes, uh, if you're an actor, you could actually end up hurting your cause, you know, you could actually um, end up, you know, turning a lot of people off to it. I mean, just look what happened with, Oh my God! Last year you had a bunch of the you had Wonder Woman singing Imagine um, with a bunch of other actors, uh, which I would just love never to hear that that song ever again. And then you and then uh, I don't know if it was the same group of actors who then took responsibility for uh, systemic racism and the deaths of unarmed black men, um, but like holy shit, was that cringe? That was that was really. Uh, um, I, I, I you know, look. I'm not going to say that anybody started saying you know what. I didn't like the idea of police killing unarmed black men, but then I saw these actors and you know what? Now I'm in favor of it. I'm not, I'm not saying that. 
it's just uh it was definitely cringe uh cringe worthy on 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 some uh, on some level for sure and by the way, if you're uh, if your old NYU philosophy class is worried that you're a, a callous monster, uh, you are arguably even even as a callous college student, uh, you are arguably being uh, more politic than uh, Ayn Rand objectivist. Uh, promoter Yaron Brook. I remember seeing him do a big official talk where somebody raised their hand and said, well, don't you have a moral obligation to be worried about things like starvation in Africa? And there are a whole bunch of appropriate ways to answer that question uh, that might even involve saying local concerns come first or something like that, uh, or utilitarian ways of answering it that say, uh, my knowledge of my own circumstances uh, are, are much greater than my knowledge of these distant problems. Maybe they need to be solved locally or whatever. Um, or, or of course, just the classic libertarian answer that markets will solve that problem better than uh, government uh, and even a lot of NGOs will. Yaron Brook laughed. He basically laughed and said, what do I care about some children in Africa I will never meet? Wow. Like that was his actual answer. And he was he was supposed to be officially representing uh, Ayn Rand and objectivism. And he's regarded as, uh, you know, a, a smart, uh, wise uh, spokesman for this philosophy. And I'm sure there were some people in the audience who thought he was doing a great job, but uh, the undecided must have been uh, horrified. Uh, so you, by contrast, I'll bet, sounded more human in that philosophy class than uh, Yaron Brook did. And he's getting paid. Yeah. Well, I got I to gotta say one thing. I was definitely younger. I was probably 21, 22 years old. I was jacked. I was. I worked out like every single day in college. Uh, I was ripped. I had um, my hair, I think might have been around the same length, but it was jet black. I had um, I didn't have a beard at the time. I had a, you know, I had a, I had a nice smooth skin. Man, uh, I miss that kid. I miss that kid yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So if you were really big, they probably thought you were like the thuggish heavy metal fan. <laughs> yeah, I was or at least it, in my day. Well, 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 at the time too, because I'm from I'm from Queens originally, and then I went to high school in Long Island and. Yeah. During college, I, I had a thick Long Island accent, um, a Queens Long Island hybrid accent, which just imagine hearing that, yeah, whatever, man, I, I, I don't care about Africa. Like, how the fuck did that sound? Now, that might have, you know, that just, yo, bro, I don't care about Africa, bro. What the fuck? Um, you know, but, um, oh, I, I wanted had a Oh, sorry. Go oh, I, was saying, uh, I actually had a brief but very philosophically significant uh, connection to NYU. In between my own youth, uh, when, uh, amongst other things, I went to Brown, uh, and then my adulthood spent in Manhattan working in various uh, media projects, uh, in between, uh, back in the 90s, I attended about once a month a gathering at NYU of libertarians when they were rare and hard to find, uh, called the CLO, or Classical Liberal Organization. I don't know if it uh, still exists in some form after all this time, uh, but uh, run by Chris Witten, who created one of the first libertarian websites in the whole world. Uh, and one of the people in our little discussion group, uh, oddly enough, was the son of Hal Holbrook, the actor who recently passed away. And one of the most memorable things about uh, Holbrook's son, uh, was that he was at that time an objectivist or close to it. I, I wasn't, but uh, but he was. Uh, and so he he was maybe a little more dismissive of like the problems of the homeless and the poor than some of the other people in the group. But, but he was like a really nice guy. So even when he complained about say behavior patterns amongst the homeless, he, you could clearly tell he was empathizing with them and asking what would I do in their place? So for instance, one thing that stuck out in my mind is he said, you know, 
I, I hitchhiked across the country for a while. So I had, I had some idea what it would be like to be homeless because I didn't take any money with me and nobody knew who I was. And I would just hitchhike my way along. And I just kept thinking, why do I hear other bums asking for a hot meal? Help me get a hot meal. Hot meals are expensive. I would always try to buy a bologna roll. You can get a bologna roll really cheap and then eat that for like a week. That's the thing to do. Um, so uh, he was perhaps more rational than the average homeless guy, mm -hmm. uh, but but an amusing character. And but I think, uh, I, I think, sad, I think, and sad that his dad passed away. Um, I, well, I think, I think the part that he's missing is sort of the marketing of asking for a hot meal versus just yeah. any cold meal. Because when you say hot meal, if I'm, you know, uh, if I'm working in marketing, we're doing branding here. I immediately, immediately think home, mother yep. being taken care of. And it's, it's sort of that, that, uh, yeah. that exchange there uh, can take place as opposed to, you know, the, you know, hot bologna uh, or the, you know, cold bologna sandwich, which sounds almost sexual uh, yeah. in a, in a way. Um, you, uh, so you went, you went to, uh, to Brown University. This is my opportunity to say I was accepted to Brown ah. University. Um, but I decided not to go to Brown University. And uh, the reason why my, my older brother actually talked me into going to NYU and the reason why is because I was offered a academic scholarship to go to NYU and Brown wasn't giving me, you know, anything. And he said, look, you know, uh, you know, try your first year at NYU. And if you don't like it, you know, maybe you could, you could transfer. Um, but I ended up doing, uh, doing all four years at, uh, um, at, at NYU, at NYU. And some people would argue that, uh, Manhattan is more exciting than Providence. So, you know, maybe that was the right call. Well, well I visited, I remember I visited, um, visited the campus, Brown University, and I had a girlfriend at the time in high school. And this is the only time I ever cheated on, um, on, a, on a girlfriend. Um, there was a very cute girl who was a part of the, you know, same, I think pre-freshman tour or some, something like that. And, um, she and I ended up kissing on, on the train ride back. Um, and I never told my high school girlfriend until she and I reconnected when I was 30 years old. Um, so there was a time, there was a gap of probably like eight years or so that um, like after college and stuff, I didn't, I didn't speak to her that we reconnected. And uh, she, I remember she told me that she was having a conversation with a guy who said like all men cheat and she said no that's not true in high school i had a boyfriend and Aww. he never cheated and then i had to break her you know her, her heart at you know 30 you know 29 30 years old and tell her no i actually kissed a girl um you know at brown um what one thing that there's one thing that i remember of it is um that girl whose name i whose name i forget we were like hanging out in, I guess, like the equivalent of like a laundry room that was on campus. And there was another guy who was, who was a total third wheel. And this guy was just, you know, kind of hanging around, kind of being a cock block. And he was eating a sandwich in the same room. So it's like me and this girl, I'm trying to like make moves and this dude's eating a sandwich. Okay. And I, it, it might've been a hot one, you know, like the, uh, you know, like the homeless guys who asked for hot sandwiches you described. Um, but he had, um, one of his hands was mangled. It was like deformed from birth. So uh -huh. this so this fucking guy is not only a cock block and that he's the third wheel, but he's also just, he has like sauce dripping down this mangled hand. That's kind of sexy. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. 
No, it, it, you know what? Actually, at the time, I should have been like, this is a sign. This is a fucking omen. Like, Lou, you should not be cheating on your high school girlfriend who you're in love with, um, you know, because look, look at this, you know, you're you're destroying something here. That's a, the, the symbol of the deformed hand is your deformed fucking relationship. But um, actually, that reminds me of something that people might regard as my most radical position. And this is not uh, this is not a typical libertarian view. This is just me, but it's related. Uh, I figure uh, if you want to adhere to the spirit of the law, so to speak, and not just the letter of the law, um, if assault, theft and fraud are bad, uh, then uh, fraud is bad because it wastes people's time or energy under false pretenses and thus all lying is wrong, I think, unless you're uh, lying as retaliation against a, an attacker uh, in, in some uh, pretty literal sense. Like, I think it's okay to lie if the mafia asks, uh, you know, wait, where's your brother hiding out or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're just talking to innocent people, uh, I think all lying is wrong. And I didn't realize how radical and rare that position is until I, until I started telling people that uh, I haven't lied since I was a teenager and decided that uh, this is the position one should uh, morally adhere to. Mm. And most people are like, that can't be true. That's baloney. And I mean, I don't blame them for not believing it if it's rare, but uh, it's not that hard to do if you get in the habit of always telling the truth. The main thing is you just pretty quickly realize you have to develop some uh, diplomatic skills. So yeah, if you're yeah. delivering bad news, you know, tell it like it is, but assure people that, you know, that doesn't mean that you're, you're laughing at their failures or whatever the problem is. Uh, if, if somebody asks, you know, uh, does this shirt suit me? Uh, you don't have to say, you look ridiculous. You know, you could just say, eh, I think I've seen you in better ones or whatever. Um, you don't have to be either vicious or, uh, or lie about it. Um, but I wonder how many people would end up uh, punished, say, in, in jail or slapped with lawsuits if we really had, say, a, a legal system mm. that regarded all lying as potentially actionable. I'd be open to that. That, that, that to some people probably sounds, you know, as radical as uh, some sort of crazy jihadism, um, but I don't know, just me trying to be a nice moral person. No, no, I, I, I hear you on that. And I'm, I'm very similar in that my, um, I make things very awkward for my wife when we go out to eat because when we go out to eat, ultimately at some point in the meal, the waiter is going to ask, how is everything? Or are you enjoying that? And there was a, a place where, where we ate this uh, kind of a upbeat or um, posh kind of Mexican restaurant. And I ordered, um, I ordered tacos, pork tacos, and they were off. There was just something about them that just wasn't wasn't working and the waiter came over and asked oh, are you in you know do you like the tacos are you enjoying them and i and i said no and he said okay would you would you like me to take them away no would you like me to get you something different no so now i just put this person in a position where there's absolutely nothing they can do but all that all I wanted them to know was that I was unhappy, you know, and I feel, and, and there've been, there have been times at restaurants where like, they'll take the item off the bill and I'll be very upset about that. Or they'll comp me and stuff. And it's like, that's not what this is about. You don't want to be a mooch. No, exactly. It's not about, I don't go out to try to get a deal. 
you know, or, or wow, I really haggled that, that, you know, that, that restaurant, this was me just, you asked me and I want you to know how unhappy you made me. Right. If you didn't ask me, I wouldn't have been the one to tell you like, you know, this isn't bad. And yeah, the amount of times like my wife would be like, don't, don't, you know, don't, you know, and, and, you know, my, you know, my wife, she's not like a, you know, a, a loud person or a fighter or anything like that. So yeah, putting my, putting my wife in those very weird, weird positions. And, 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 and it's like, I don't have to do that. Like, why am I doing that? But a little part of uh, what, what do they say when you lie, a little part of the world dies. Is that, was that a, say that? I, uh, I, I'm not sure of the saying, but, but I think that, you know, there is a sense in which it undermines everyone's ability to uh, trust and collaborate and uh, yeah. believe. Um, although having a naivete crushed can also be a, a useful thing. Um, I, I, uh, I, I also, you mentioned uh, skepticism. Uh, mm -hmm. earlier. And uh, before I even had any real political philosophy, uh, as a teenager, the uh, first movement I ever felt that I was a part of was the uh, so-called skeptics movement. I'm uh, very similar, very similar. That 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 was sort of how I found my way over to, uh, to libertarianism. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was it was sort of the same with me. I um, so as a teenager, I suppose uh, some of our more conservative acquaintances would have considered me the uh, annoying town atheist type. Uh, although I don't think I was too loud about it, but but I was uh, but I was very uh, committed to that to the position. And uh, and then it was more in my late teens applied the same sort of uh, skepticism to government. Oh, I I I should say for those who don't know the uh, skeptics movement is basically pro-science and says that you, you shouldn't believe things or espouse things without having good solid evidence. Uh, you should not behave like a new ager, to use a term popular in the 1980s, uh, who just thinks that belief is whatever you want it to be and you can uh, have your own reality and, and all that. Uh, I thought you know, that sort of thinking was a disaster. Science had accomplished great things. I was, of course, a nerd as a child. So I thought that system of thought that gave us chemistry and engineering and space flight uh, was a good thing. I didn't want everybody to turn into a bunch of uh, mystics or hippies like you might find at Brown um, who believe in crystals or, or, or whatever. Uh, so uh, so I have a few years there, my formative uh, teen period of, uh, of thinking of myself first and foremost as, uh, as a uh, skeptic and thus uh, was also not as drawn to uh, sort of the religious right, which was popular then, uh, as probably some non-leftists would have been uh, in my milieu. So even before I encountered libertarianism, I was this sort of um, neither left nor right creature who was trying to be a rational individual. And you can see how that would lead to one perhaps turning into an Ayn Rand type or a libertarian or, or, or something uh, like it. Yeah. Um, I, if anything, I have become, I think, a little bit more agnostic uh, than I was as a teen in that, uh, although I still do not know of any evidence for, or any solid evidence for any paranormal phenomena, including God, um, I, the, you can't live through the past few decades uh, without thinking the world is very strange mm. and uh, there could be things about it that are true that uh, <clears throat> I never previously imagined. Also, 
by the time uh, you're my age, you start to realize that it's not just the cranks and the fringe people who are uh, full of baloney. It's also the esteemed scientists and mm -hmm. uh, respected corporations and uh, beloved officials. Uh, so it's entirely possible that some stupid fad uh, has swept science just as it might uh, journalism or politics or, or anything else. So I'm, I'm getting closer to the sort of Mulder uh, trust trust no one uh, position uh, than I was back as a teen when I would have said, uh, oh, go ahead and trust the scientists. Uh, don't mm -hmm. just don't trust the crank non-scientists. That may have been hasty. Yeah. No, but I, I've, I've um, I would describe it over the past few years, I've been having a crisis of no faith um, that it's sort of uh, sort of in a, in a similar uh, similar vein. And, and, and with the with the skeptics movement, it really opened up a world to me where it was where the idea was question. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask for evidence, especially if somebody's putting forward something. And um, I'm not a, you know, a, uh, I'm not a, a scientist, but it works in, you know, that that same uh, way of going about things um, of, of, of observing and, and, and all that and questioning comes into all different aspects where it's like, oh, um, the reason why this is happening is because of X. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Are there any other factors that might be that might be playing a part? And I think that works, that naturally works itself into, uh, you know, a, a healthy skepticism of, of the state of government and what, you know, what, what, what roles uh, they're playing. Um, you, since, since, you know, you, you, you were talking about lies before, th this is something that I've, that I've been thinking about uh, a lot recently. And uh, I remember seeing another uh, uh, anarchist uh, bring it up. It has to do with, um, with uh, reputation. And, you know, we now live in a time where, you know, forever you, you, you were always able to lie about somebody. But now the speed at which you can lie about somebody and the reach you can get is astounding. You know, you could say something about about someone and with cancel culture, you know, you could destroy somebody's life and reputation for, you know, for forever. And with that, I wonder, like, is that can that be construed as a violation of the non-aggression principle, meaning, you know, if somebody talks enough shit online and lies about you might you have a uh, um, a right to go knock on that person's door and you know go old school and beat the shit out of them um because i i've i've been seeing i, I have a, a friend of mine who's a journalist and i'm not going to, to name to name him because i don't want him getting in, in in trouble um but i've seen quite a few people openly lie about this man and it's really, really upsetting. And I was just thinking like, man, you, you people are so lucky that he's such a sweetheart, that he's such a sweet guy with good intentions, who enters into conversations in good faith, who tries so hard to see the good in people. You are so lucky he's that guy and not the type of guy who's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna take a fucking bat to your head, you know? Um, so, <laughs> what what do you think about that? Uh, uh, well, I, it's interesting. I uh, 
you know, there, there are some issues where you might expect to uh, say a libertarian to have a strong position, but uh, there's actually a surprising gray area like intellectual property rights. There's right. a broad spectrum of disagreement amongst libertarians on that. And there's some disagreement about whether uh, slander and libel laws are legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like them. Maybe that's that outgrowth of me not liking lying um, and even thinking lying perhaps should be uh, legally actionable. Um, but I can understand some libertarians thinking, you know, the, the response to false claims is true claims and uh, you, uh, you have a right to your physical property and such, but you don't have a right to your reputation. That's too abstract. I mean, strictly speaking, by libertarian standards, you don't even have a right to your property values. You just have a right to your property, right? So like if something changes in your town and it causes your house to become less valuable, you can't sue anyone about that, right? Uh, um, you have to accept the fact that the the market has fluctuated. So I can understand people uh, being divided on that. Um, but if uh, libel and slander are akin to fraud, if, you're, if people are sort of interfering with your future transactions by creating a false impression about you and your property, uh, then maybe you have a case for acting um, akin to slander and libel laws. And if I'm an anarcho-capitalist who wants to get rid of the government and have private protection agencies, then maybe you do have a right to enforce uh, a judgment against slander uh, or libel by going to that person's house with a baseball bat. So I, of course, uh, neither you nor I are Correct. actually uh, suggesting imminent violence against any specific person. I we, should do say not, just... we don't even own a baseball bat, <laughs> That's true. let, let right. alone two baseball bats to make right. this a tag team. But I guess really what I'm saying is philosophically, if you ever want to find somebody who sounds at times like a respectable Republican type, but is willing to make an argument for you being able to go beat those people who uh, lied about your friend with a baseball bat, I guess I guess I'm your man. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because I, I, I've been uh, I've, I've seen as just, you know, as recently as um, as today, I discovered that somebody had uh, described me as 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 far right and um I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that was published at the end of uh, 2020 about um, you know my uh, my old uh, comedy channel being described as 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 far right and my concern because uh, the material we made was not far right and I as the head writer and producer am not far right and you know thinking about what you know what kind of negative consequences that can have for you know, for me and my career. And uh, today was, uh, you know, we're a few months removed from that. And today I, I saw somebody from my past had described, described me, and they didn't put my name, but I knew they were talking about me, uh, described me as far right. And, you know, when something like that happens, for one, it's, you know, nobody wants to be mislabeled, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, part of, uh, part of my struggle is uh, being able, you know, trying to communicate as best I can who I am and what I believe and, 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 and all that. And I, you know, sometimes I do it better, you know, better than other times, but I was just thinking like, you know, like this person who called me far right, like if we were ever to meet face to face, like, would they want me to treat them the way a far right person would treat them? You know, like, because in my mind, when I think of far right, I think of, you know, violent hooligans who, um, you know, see their enemies as subhuman and that could be treated cruelly. And it's like, like, do you like, for one, do you really think I would, I would, I would see you that way, but also do you want me to treat you that way? 
you know, in the same way of, uh, you know, calling somebody a Nazi or a fascist, it's like face to face Do you, like, how do you think a Nazi or a fascist would treat you, you know? Um, so, you know, it's just something that, uh, that, that's been on my mind and, and, you know, kind of making my skin crawl. Every once in a while, you'll hear frustrated political people say, uh, maybe we should just get away from all of these labels, right and left and so forth. Yeah. But of course, it's really hard to do because the labels are useful for describing people. And a lot of times if people say they uh, don't recognize any of those labels, uh, they're actually just being pretentious. They're not really rising above things. They just wish they were rising above the fray. Um, However, I, just before we started this conversation, I did get a reminder, thanks to Twitter, uh, of how stupid the obsession with the labels can get. So long story short, uh, I had said there are some sleazy people on the left, like uh, I guess the, uh, the people I listed, for whatever reason, don't worry about that, were uh, Cuomo, Biden, Woody Allen, and Derrida. <laughs> and Jeet here, the uh, oh, yeah. left-leaning uh, writer from The Nation uh, responded uh, against me on Twitter, not by saying those people aren't sleazy, but interestingly, by making the taxonomical complaint that they're not on the left. So, I mean, I guess I could go through and, and uh, I, I did at least briefly tweet one of the people in that conversation about how I was defining left, but uh, I don't know, it, uh, I at least wouldn't call Cuomo, Biden, Derrida, Woody Allen, uh, right-wingers or Republicans. Uh, but you know, uh, that surely is an example of time wasted on mm. the uh, tri tribal labeling. Uh, and even amongst uh, libertarians, uh, one, one of the things that saddens me to get back to what we started this conversation with uh, about libertarians lately is they, uh, they fight so much uh, over tribal uh, disagreements that they end up replicating a lot of the stupidity from the non-libertarian parts of the uh, political spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's like if, if you've got a bunch of libertarians in a room, uh, you'd you'd hope they could sort of say, Whew, you know, the right wingers and the left wingers aren't here. We can now get down to brass tacks and have a serious conversation about opposing the government or whatever. Uh, and instead, they get together and say, you know, and half of them say we've got to build a wall, and the other half say, uh, are you out of your mind? There should be no borders. Uh, and so, or they argue about abortion or something, um, or or race. And uh, and I just can't help thinking like they, they've wasted uh, all the energy they could have been devoted to arguing about things that the right and the left don't even talk about. Um, which is also why, boring and dry as it may sound, I kind of think groups like FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, have roughly the right ideas. Like, try to teach people economics. It goes so far uh, because if you approach these issues via almost any other path, you might reach the right answer on that one issue, but it's not immediately obvious to a rational mind how the lessons apply to every other area of life. Whereas if you convince people that every property rights violation does harm and is a mistake, it's pretty easy to extrapolate from that and see like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, so stealing your car would be bad, bombing you for no reason would be bad, uh, initiating a barroom brawl would be bad, rape is bad, and so forth. Like the other, the other stuff follows more easily if you sell them on the property strict property rights adherence idea uh, first. So teach econ is my rather dry, nerdy solution to a lot of our problems. And of course, on both right and left, uh, there are a lot of people right now who thinks who think that's wimpy, nerdy talk and gets us nowhere, which is sad.
Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I'm glad you bring up Fee. I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs. And um, uh, Sean Malone is a buddy uh, over there who makes uh, really great videos. And uh, I'm bummed because this year was going to be the 75th anniversary of the of, of Fee. And um, there was going to be uh, the celebration in Atlanta, but they ended up having to uh, cancel it ultimately because they weren't um, going to be able to, you know, I guess, uh, do it justice with whatever... Um, you know, whatever the protocols are. Um, but yeah, they're, they're fantastic. And I think over the past, um, I'd say probably like the past four years, they really have become, uh, their articles and uh, their articles in particular just been become so accessible and they do such a really great job doing, you know, what their uh, mission statement is, which is to, you know, give um, economic education. Um, and I'm really, um, really a big fan of, of their work. Um, uh, something I wanted to talk about, you know, since we're talking about libertarians and anarchists and our capitalists, uh, aliens. Do you think? Do you think aliens are going to be uh, libertarians? What do you think? What do you think? Uh, well, in in a sense, uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, in that, I was I was talking earlier about thinking that uh, moral and economic principles should be thought of as universal. Uh, so, uh, with luck. If there are aliens out there somewhere, they have had these same sorts of debates uh, and maybe even had a million more years than we have to think it over. Uh, and yes, I think ultimately they would be some sort of libertarian, which would be a rude shock to a lot of sci-fi writers and fans uh, who lean towards socialism and think that uh, when the aliens come, it'll be like some 1950 book where uh, they're all wearing robes and look like Bertrand Russell and they come out and tell everyone that they have to make their property communal. I think they're going to be surprised. Um, well, if the aliens ever show up and I don't know if they will. Uh, although uh, I suppose that naturally leads to uh, UFOs as a topic. Actually, there's, yeah. another, there's another thing where uh, the ground has shifted a lot in the last uh, five years. So as a teenager, I was a hardcore skeptic. And for a couple of decades after that, I basically thought anybody who talked about UFOs was a moron. And I should apologize if, if some of those people are listening. I was, I was a little too harsh, sorry. Um, I was completely dismissive of the issue, mainly because uh, back when I was a kid, uh, the, the hardcore believers, but at least in the 80s, were new age types who basically thought that evidence is unnecessary. Just believe whatever you think is beautiful. Uh, and they wanted to commune with the orbs that they thought they were seeing in the sky or whatever, or the voices they heard in their dreams. There was just like, really no interest in hard evidence. Uh, and, uh, and then it seemed like uh, for a while the, the topic was fading away. And I assumed, like a lot of people, that only idiots were, were seeing these things or, or uh, obsessing over it. Uh, and then just in the last 10 years or so, it seems like uh, a lot of news came out about how many expert observers, especially military, uh, have actually claimed to see these things and well, be unable that, to that, explain that them. That documentary that came out uh, recently, was it the phenomenon? The phenomenon? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that any of that proves there, uh, there is alien life uh, and, and people should be reminded once in a while that NASA hasn't definitively found bacteria uh, from off world uh, either. So uh, for all we know, Earth may be the only, could be the only life in the universe in theory. Um, uh, we don't know otherwise yet. And I remain skeptical about other paranormal claims like ghosts, God, uh, psychic phenomena. I don't think any of those things are conclusively proven. However, uh, 
it is interesting how voluminous the uh, like the government's records of military sightings of strange things they can't quite explain are. And it's interesting that they lied about it in many cases. Like mm -hmm. if there's nothing going on, why are they lying about it? Now it could just be the government lies about everything. And when in doubt, everything becomes classified. Uh, it could also be some uh, earthly, but slightly sinister explanation, like they want to frighten the Chinese or the Russians. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you pretend that you have alien technology, maybe it makes you more intimidating, uh, that sort of thing. Even chimpanzees understand that you can gain great power over the rest of the tribe by seizing a couple of human gas cans and banging them together and frightening the other chimpanzees. Really? They don't understand what's going on. Uh, so you know, there could be military reasons for these things. And some of them could be military objects. They could be weird drones that we uh, don't yet publicly acknowledge. So I don't know ultimately what's going on, but I do think it's a more legitimate area of inquiry than I would have thought uh, 10 or, or 15 years ago. So I'm sort of pleased that people have started uh, debating it. It's funny. Some people probably think that one of the most encouraging things is that uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee says they're going to do a report in the next couple of months uh, about what is known by the government on UFOs. Uh, and I'm probably, I, I find myself becoming akin to some of the most uh, hardcore UFO conspiracy theorists in that my first reaction now is not, oh, that'll be interesting, but rather, oh, they're totally going to lie. Like, no matter what they say, whether they say they're aliens or no aliens, I'm not going to believe them. Um, Marco Rubio is going to tell me the truth about whether this is all a deep state military project. I doubt it, but I look forward to it with curiosity at least. Well, I, uh, I, you know, sadly, I think we've gotten to the point where if there, you know, if it does come out that, you know, alien life is out there and they have uh, connected with us and made contact uh, with us, I think it'll be, you know, pretty big for a couple of days and then it'll just, and then it'll just go away. We'll be, we'll be on to something else. We'll be on to, you know, any number of the other things that, that are, that are tearing us uh tearing us apart, you know, and they were, they're arguing over, um, with, um, I remember watching, watching that, that documentary and it was pretty amazing seeing all of the footage from, um, people in air and, you know, like fighter pilots and stuff like that, like trying to keep up with these things and just saying, yeah, but, uh, man-made, uh, vehicles just don't move that way. Like you can't, stop on in a you know stop on a dime and then just make like a quick uh you know quick maneuver like that at the same time i've seen uh plausible sounding arguments that the apparent object in that footage is just a lens flare phenomenon so I don't know. You know, you'll hear these things that sound amazing, and then they usually uh, dissolve and unravel when you look into them in greater detail. But then uh, other times, uh, there are there are cases that start out sounding ridiculous, and the more you look into it, the more plausible it seems. Uh, oh, actually, one of my uh, favorite examples of that is uh, one that might be familiar to some uh, conservative listeners. Uh, they might be familiar with Hillsdale College, uh, one of the few uh, really conservative uh, colleges in, in America of any prominence. And I didn't know that the uh, UFO sighting from the 60s that was notoriously dismissed by a government expert as swamp gas, uh, which I assume took out, took place somewhere out in the bayou uh, with a bunch of, you know, moonshine swilling uh, yokels uh, staring into the sky, happened 
on the campus of Hillsdale College. It was Hillsdale College in 1966. A whole bunch of people saw it. Students were looking at their dorms. They say they saw this massive shifting lights hovering at about a uh, third story level. Cops down in the town saw it and came running up the hill to the college to see what it was. And then it, it went away and, and, and nobody could find it. And uh, the government expert who was dispatched to study it said it may have, actually his exact phrasing, I think was marsh gas. It may have just been a, a burst of marsh gas uh, that was uh, that was bioluminescing or something. Uh, and uh, years later, he said he didn't actually believe that and that the government had just told him tamp down these cases as quickly as they arise or public panic might occur. Uh, so he ended up becoming a big advocate for UFO disclosure, uh, as they call it. And Gerald Ford, uh, who was at the time the uh, congressman for that district, uh, urged an inv a further investigation uh, of what that UFO at Hillsdale uh, actually was. Uh, so some of these cases are stranger than they at first appear, and then most of them are less significant than they at first appear. Yeah. Um, in, in this documentary, I, I, I thought the weakest part of the doc, and spoiler alert, um, it ends with um, interviews with uh, um, adults who, as school children, witnessed um or according to them witnessed a, a ufo landing and actually um extraterrestrials so and so you had a bunch of uh people who are older now who you know as they were student when they were students i believe they were in zimbabwe was it zimbabwe um, I, if, I, I bet yeah. I, it, it's sort of embarrassing that i know but i, I bet it was the zimbabwe yeah. case. and just so you know uh when lou perez was in college i don't give a fuck about zimbabwe um but <laughs> <laughs> if it was like 1994 and, and the town name was Rue or something like that, I think. Yeah, that. something like that. So you had all of these these children who said that they saw this and as, as well as uh, the, um, I guess they call them headmistress and, and, and stuff. And for, for me, that was the weakest part, even though you would think like, oh, you know, here's, you know, first, you know, firsthand uh, accounts of it. But, you know, over the years, just hearing about, um you know, sort of mass delusions when it comes to like uh, the satanic fears in like the 80s and, and 90s and made up memory, recalled memories and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. I was like, yeah, um, I, I, I was I was a lot more I was uh, I was believing uh, a lot more of like the all the military guys, I guess, who, you know, were flight boys who had who had come into contact with uh, with those unidentified flying objects. Uh there's an interesting case that is very much like a combination of the three cases we've been talking about. If you combine Zimbabwe, Hillsdale, and the military sightings, uh, and you fuse them all together, you sort of get a case that really happened in the 60s in Australia, where uh, a bunch of uh, children, uh, a really large group, and uh, some teachers and other adults uh, saw some weird object hovering over the school. And, uh, and then military people showed up and basically told everyone, you can't talk about this. Uh, if you have cameras that, and you took pictures of it, we're confiscating them. And decades later, uh, there's still debate amongst the town folk about whether what they saw was alien or was some sort of military project that they still don't really understand. Uh, and at least uh, a few of the kids claim that like one kid who was a really direct witness and walked over to whatever the thing was when it landed uh, suddenly left town the next day and wasn't wasn't seen again, mm. um, coincidentally or not. Uh, but if you look up that 1960s Australia case, uh, it there's uh, there are still living witnesses and they've been uh, interviewed all together 
uh, in relatively recent times. And uh, sound convincing, although of course people can be convincing and wrong. Um, but that that case, uh, I think, is one of the most impressive and multiple witness uh, uh, accounts uh, I've heard of. Yeah, I, I you know, I think I would be the wrong person to be abducted. You know, I, I think I think I think I would be the wrong person physically to be abducted. Like there's nothing there's nothing super interesting about my body. Again, maybe if I went back in time when I was 22 and jacked, um, you know, with my my thick Long Island accent, maybe that would there would be something there. Um, but, yeah, I don't think there's anything too special about, you know, about me that that a an alien race would particularly be interested in. Uh, you know, you hear about all the anal probes and, and it's like, I don't, there's nothing, nothing about my asshole that I think would, would give them any more information about the universe than, than they probably already know. Uh, to quote the Simpsons, we have reached the limits of what rectal probing can teach us. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Um, uh, be, be, before we go, I want to ask you um, about, uh, you know, you're a writer, you have your own, you have your own books. Um, but you also ghostwrite, and um, I'm not going to ask. You know the the titles of those of those uh, books shall remain uh, hidden. Um, well, you know what is it? What is it like being being a ghostwriter? Because as, as as somebody who I write, I create my own stuff. I can't imagine typing out you know 200, 300 pages. And putting somebody else's name on it, like I would just, I, at, at some point, I feel like I would just, I don't know, rip up the the contract and go, you know, go into hiding and just print it out on my own. Or how, how do you? And, uh, and things like that happen once in a while. Um, I, uh, I, I guess um, uh, the important thing is, I guess, if you're a ghostwriter, to think of yourself almost like an editor rather than the person who's. Uh, speaking all of these views. So you're probably being handed a whole bunch of information and stories from someone else. And your main job is to make them sound coherent and organized. Um, so that makes it a lot easier, especially if you've, if you've done any uh, editing um, and you can distance your, actually, if, if you're thinking of it as almost an editing job, you probably don't want to put your own name on it by the end uh, because it isn't your voice if you're do, if you're doing the job correctly, um, and uh, uh, and, and I, I am tempted though to uh, write write another book under my own name, and uh, I didn't entirely predict this when I was young, but I think it's going to sound more and more cynical and nihilistic the older I get. Mm. Uh, I, when I was young, I kind of made the conservative assumption that as you get older, you get more sort of settled into civilization in a bourgeois way. I'll probably become more accepting of many rules and patterns of society that when I was young didn't seem to make sense. And uh, I gotta say, it's not working out that way so far. I, in fact, it just seems like the older I get, the more I think this is all nonsense, that this, this is all crazy. Um, you hear people, uh, you, you hear some of the uh, uh, sinister, wealthy, politically connected elite talking about uh, you know a great reset coming out of COVID. And, uh, and in some ways I almost find myself uh, uh, sympathizing. Uh, and of course, they might want more central planning, but I find myself thinking, hey, we all kind of had a breather where uh, we sat things out for about a year uh, because of COVID. 
do we really want to go back to the way things are that were? Uh, even in the case of New York City, uh, it pains me to see how much activity in New York has been shut down. But then I think sometimes about the activities I was a part of before COVID. Do I really want them to to happen mm. again? Like I, I miss parties sometimes, and then I remember, oh my gosh, those parties were awful. Do I really <laughs> want that to happen again? Uh, maybe if we just had a do-over after all this, it wouldn't be be so bad. That probably sounds terribly revolutionary and unconservative, but uh, there must be some people feeling that way. Yeah, um, I think they're. I think calling for a mulligan, uh, I would feel better about it if, if I was um, confident that other people were sort of, you know, taking this time to really, um, to really figure out what's most important in life, you know, and, um, uh, and I just don't think that's. I just don't think that's the. Uh, that that's the case I, where it's sort of this this you know new world that we're looking forward to it's sort of you know what baggage are we leaving behind but also what new baggage are we taking into that um that um yeah i i, I think we might end up with a situation where um everyone who's very vocal or has some sort of authority uh will be talking as if the future must be uh, omnipresent surveillance focused on big cities and a huge portion of the population is basically going to come out of this thinking I've got to move out into the woods and do a lot more hiking you know just just like liberate myself get away from it all escape um, that might produce inter an interesting dichotomy I sometimes think maybe I should have become a forest ranger back when I was young and then I wouldn't have to deal with uh, crazy New Yorkers and stuff no but you'd have to deal with the uh the Bundy ranch right um, <laughs> those guys coming out there to take over one of your tree houses so. maybe or Sasquatch but uh, that's a separate topic that's a separate topic and, and I don't know of any good evidence for Sasquatch I no say. but uh, but he may he may exist on um on a different frequency that's what I. That's what I heard. I had a uh, a jujitsu coach who was talking about Bigfoot, um, and and was talking about how you don't you don't necessarily see him because he might be on a different wavelength. So, so there we go. I but, guess the the uh, the superhero and sci-fi fan in me feels like that's kind of muddying the Bigfoot concept. I mean, you know, I suppose it could turn out to be true, but. Uh, there's a certain purity of him just being a big shaggy ape guy in the woods and you start adding teleportation and multiple dimensions and I don't know, it kind of mixes the message there. Did it's you, like genre crossing in an ugly way. Yeah. Did you ever see, um, was it the man who killed Hitler and Bigfoot and the Sasquatch or something like that? Did you see it, that? It is on my literal list of things to see, but I have not uh, yet okay. gotten around to it. I, I will not ruin that for you, but when you, I've, I've heard it's not great. No, it is. <laughs> it is not. But, um, when you, when you see it, I want to, I want to hear what you think about it. Um, and you know what I'm going to give, uh, I, I, I need to, to, um, to, to plug the pieces that you write over at splice splice.com. Right. Um, splicetoday.com. Splicetoday.com. Oh, did that change? Did, did they, uh, I, I, it often gets referred to casually as Splice for short, but the URL has always been splicetoday.com. Okay, and and you you're still um, publishing stuff there pretty regularly, right? Yep, uh, once a week, uh, once a week. now. 
a column and uh, and usually on libertarian stuff. Oh, and I should say on a sort of a Bigfoot adjacent note uh, that uh, I did see Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, so I was, I'm keeping up on the most important pop culture developments as well. Nice. I mean, I'm going to use that as a, a chance to plug my own video. Huh? Woke, woke oh, yeah. Godzilla, everybody. Saw woke that. Godzilla. And um, put a lot of money into that, ladies and gentlemen. Please... <laughs> Please share that with people. Uh, I think I think I think there, there's something there. Uh, and anybody here who who's a fan of my my sketch comedy, um, my my partner uh, and my, my partner Greg and I had a history of uh, really any idea that we got into that we were excited about, we would put out there, and that would often you know take the form of doing parodies of movies like The Hurt Locker like a couple of years after the Hurt Locker was gone from, you know, and nobody would ever think about that movie ever again, but we, but God damn it. We, we had a dream about that and we would, we would put it out there. So I've sort of taken that philosophy of, am I excited about this? If I'm excited about this, let me put it out there. Um, and I am excited about Woke Godzilla and I really want people to see it. Please go and see it. The, the amount of work that went into it is pretty, uh, Pretty extraordinary. And, and it's shorter than Godzilla versus Kong. So yes. ar arguably a better investment of time. Yeah, I, it's um, it, it's about three and a half minutes long, I believe. Um, close to four. Um, the, the, I think the, the, the Snyder cut is going to be like four minutes. Um, <laughs> Todd, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Uh, are there any plugs you'd like to, uh, to put out there? Uh, no, I think you've covered it. Splice today, buy uh, the book uh, Libertarianism for Beginners from the usual bookstore type places. And uh, and maybe someday soon, vaccinated or not, uh, I'll, I'll do uh, public events again out and about in the world. We'll see. That'll be fantastic. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and go ahead and support my sponsors. Black Organic Cold Brew, head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use the promo code LU for free shipping. And if you head over to Paloma Verde, www.palomaverdestore.com and use the promo code LU, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you sign up for email, you'll get an extra 10% off. All right, later.